This is KMTT. The week begins this uh, winter, Tavshin Ayn, with a shiur by Harav Benjamin Tavori, a series, weekly series, on uh, modern responsa of the 20th century, more or less, both the individual and the and the topic. Harav Benjamin Tavori. Today we will discuss the Sfarim Devar Yehoshua, written by Harav Yehoshua Menachem Ehrenberg. The greatness of the Galitzia Poskim was evident in some of the former tshuvas that we dealt with, the Chalkas Yaakov, Minchas Yitzchak. Rav Ehrenberg belonged to that genre person who was born in Hungary on, in 1905, Tafrei was born into a Hasidic family in Galicia. When he was young, he learned at first in a regular class. His father then hired a private tutor when it was seen that he was exceptional in his talents. He eventually learned as a young fellow with a Chavrusa who was later to become the Klosenberger Rebbe, Ravi Kusia Yehuda Alberstam. He learned and got smicha from Rav Meir Arik, who was considered one of the great postkim and Hamidi Chachamim of his generation. A number of the people that we've mentioned before had received smicha from Rav Meir Arik, who was the author of a famous sefer called Imre Yosher. When he was about 20, Rav Ehrenberg got married and moved to Krakow. In Krakow, he became known as an outstanding Tamut Chacham, and fellows sort of just joined him and became attached to him as part of a yeshiva that was sort of an unofficial yeshiva where he taught Torah to other people. Rav Ehrenberg was a chassid, specifically very much attached to Belzer Hasidim. And we see in his Sfarim, sometimes he deals with Belzer and Hagim and tries to explain them according to the Halacha. In 1937, he was about to publish a Sefer that apparently has been completely lost. The Sefer was about the Sefer, a parish in the Sefer Rokeach, and at first he didn't print it, and then he tried to print it, and eventually it seems to have been lost during the Shoah. There is a story that he had another Sefer writ- written on the Sefer HaChinuch, but the Belzer Rebbe told him not to print it because there was already a Minchas Chinuch, and somehow the rivalry between him and the Minchas Chinuch would be too great, and therefore he really listened to him and never printed it. I won't go through the details of how Rav Ehrenberg managed through the Shoah, but as many other people that we've discussed have written about their experiences in the Shoah, he also said that he passed through many, many different struggles, many different types, times where he felt he was about to die at Kiddush Hashem, but he was saved Benissim. 
what is really amazing is there were tshuvos that he wrote in those conditions without svarim, and it seems from just from memory he quoted large sections not only of Shas, of Rishonim, but of Poskim in Chuvos as well. He eventually had a place on the famous train of Kastner, and he came to Switzerland. In 1945, he finally came to Eretz Israel, And here, he right away in Yerushalayim became attached to the various Gedolim of Yerushalayim, went to speak to them in learning. They, it seems to me, from the letters that I've read, had not really known of him until he came into Eretz Yisrael. The Belzer Rebbe, of course, did know about him, and the Belzer Rebbe actually was the one who tried to intervene to get him allowed into Eretz Yisrael. But people like Rav Herzog wrote that they knew him from the day that he came into Eretz Yisrael, and they realized what a great Tamid Chacham he was. Rav Herzog actually wrote that I was extremely impressed, and I only hope that we can find a place for him in the rabbinic world in Eretz Yisrael. One of the first assignments that he was asked to undertake was to become the Rav of the community in Cyprus. There were many, many Plite Shoah, many refugees who went to the Cyprus, to went to Cyprus to the camps there, and they needed spiritual guidance at that time. There were many halachic issues that came up at the time, but they also needed someone who could really understand their situation and empathize with them, as well as knowing how to paskin and how to deal with all kinds of halachic issues that came up in Kafrisin. They chose Rav Ehrenberg for this position, and he did go. He left his family in Eretz Israel, and he went to Cyprus and did much work in the camp of Cyprus. When there was no longer any need for that position, Rav Ehrenberg returned to Eretz Israel, became the Rav of Yafo, and became a Dayan in Tel Aviv. As a Rav, a Dayan, he was asked many, many tshuvot, and he published in 19... Tav Shin Lamid, that would be 1970, he published the first volume of the Dvar Yoshua. Later on, other volumes were printed. Today we have at least six volumes of Chuvos of the Dvar Yoshua. The first volume was printed, as I said, in 1970, and there he said most of the Chuvos there that he chose to print were not so much they weren't such actual questions. And the reason he put in that statement in the first volume is because these tshuvas, many of which had been written under terrible conditions or under conditions where he had no svarim available, he didn't want to issue a psak halacha as a horah, as a psak for what people, for, which would cause people in the future any halachic issues, because he really didn't have time when he wrote those tshuvas 
to have sources to check sources. However, the later volumes that were published, and some of which were published posthumously, did deal more with halacha lemasa. And as I said, we have six volumes today of the Dvar Yoshua. Rav Ehrenberg passed away in Tavshin Lamed Vav, 1976. And what we can really say about him, without knowing him personally, but just reading the tshuvos and reading what people wrote about him, it's obviously appropriate to mention that he was a Sarid, one of the survivors of the great Gaonim of Galicia. As in the words of a biography written in the introduction to the Dvar Yoshua, it says, in his talkuto, when he, with his petira, with his death, hulgash huram nezer, husratara, the crown was removed. Halach levet olamo gaon v'chasid posek v'meshiv marbitz Torah l'adarim, a gaon, a tzaddik, a chassid, a person who answered questions, a person who taught Torah, has passed away. But the phrase that I really wanted is v'nityateim hador me'echad hasridim achronim shel gonei Torah benusach galicia. This generation has lost one of the few survivors, one of the last survivors of the great gaonim from the world of Galicia. Even though the first volume, as I said before, was not written halacha for the future so much, I'd like to discuss a few questions that are written, printed in the first volume, but we ho- I hope to get to some questions in the second volume, which might be more practical halacha And Some of the reasons I wanted to choose these chuvos are some of them do reflect the situation under which Rav Ehrenberg lived and sometimes how he wrote his chuvos. In Simon Yudbeis of Chelek Aleph, he was asked the question, under extraordinary circumstances, could we permit Yichud with a non-Jewish person? Now, we know that Yichud is Asr, and that there's a long discussion if it's Asr, the Reis or the Rabbanan, but without going into that discussion, the question was, the reason that Yichud is Asr is because, uh, obviously, we're afraid a man and a woman alone in a room could lead to, let's put it politely, not such good results. But the situation that was written, the tshuva was written in 1944 in Budapest. And there, the, the government had issued an edict that any Jew that has relations with a non Jewish person, we're talking about intimate relations between a Jew and a non-Jewish person, whether it be done with both parts consenting, whether it be part considered as rape, the person would be punished physically and there would be a, a monetary fine imposed. In such a case, perhaps we do not have to be afraid that they will have relations and therefore, under extenuating circumstances, we could permit yichud. The qu- question really had already been raised. 
Rav Ehrenberg quotes a tshuva of the Chavos Yoyer to discuss when there was a case before that in Jewish history where they said anyone who would have relations with the Jewish would be burned. In such a case, there was a tshuva of the Chavos Yoyer that permitted Yichud. It could be there was a distinction between the husband, a man, having yichud with a woman, with a non-Jewish woman, or vice versa. Rav Ehrenberg does discuss in this question the difference. If is there is a difference, he obviously is going to discuss the question, what exactly is the Isra of yichud? But at the end, he really did say that if in the case of a man being alone with a non-Jewish woman, it might be difficult to find a heter. The reverse case, he felt you could find a heter. But in this particular case, he felt there was not to be a heter. One of the points he said, he raised, was if a Jew would have a relation, would, would have yichud with a non-Jewish woman, maybe he would actually convert in order to marry this particular person, or at least have relations with this particular person. Of course, the laws were, that were imposed then would allow, or at least we could find a heter for such a, a problem, because the laws then, that even when a Jew would convert to Christianity or to any other religion, they still could not have contact. They, the conversion to non-Jewish religion was not accepted by the local government, not because they were protecting the Jews, but because they wanted to stay Ryan to stay clear of any Jewish relations. So therefore, perhaps in such a case, there is a bigger reason to be makil. The, the bottom line is he says that if the wife is somewhere around, even though she's not there, perhaps we can find a place to be matir. The question itself is the interesting point of this tshuva. When is there a place to be matir and isur because the reason does does not apply in this particular case? Of course, this question would depend a lot upon whether yichud is an isur daraisa, is an isur rabbanan, and when you have an isur and the reason does not apply, would we keep this halacha as well? Would we have to keep the halacha even though the reason doesn't apply? As I said before, the uh, the Rav Ehrenberg was only mekel if the wife is in the city someplace. But as long as she's not, he really felt you could not find a place to be matir, that question. Another question that was asked, and I said, I think this reflects some of his thoughts in the first period of his life, was a question that was written to Rav Moshe Deutsch. And the question was, Rav, Rav Deitch was a Rav in Basel. 
and they had asked him a question about Shechita. Now, the question itself is irrelevant to my discussion. What happened was, Rav Deutsch thought the particular question was was forbidden. You could not find a heter. But he was afraid to express an opinion because his whole parnasa, his livelihood, was dependent upon the kila. And many rabbanim, or at least some rabbanim of the kila, permitted the shechita. He felt, Rav Deitch, that if he will say that it's forbidden, they'll just fire him. And he won't receive any support. He will not be, have a, a parnasa. And therefore, in the phrase of the Rav Ehrenberg, Ari Shoel, even though you yourself, the Ari, the, the lion, the Tamit Chacham, asked the question to Rav Ehrenberg, does he have to pask in a question? Or could he just say, no, I don't know. When the end of the day, he knows that they're not going to listen to him if he says it's, it's forbidden. They just want to find out what he thinks. So, inasmuch as Rav Deitch wasn't well, needed their support, in fact, there were extensive medical bills involved, could he refrain from answering the question? And the discussion that Rav Ehrenberg raises is the fact that a person is included in the concept of let me elaborate for a moment. The Pasuk says, it, they caused many people to pass away, and it's terrible, all those that died. And the Gemara says, this is referring to two different cases. A person who is not capable of psak and paskins anyway, and someone who is capable of psak. He reached the level of hora'a, of psak, but he doesn't want to paskin. And the Gemara says they're both included in the pasuk almost to be compared to murderers. There's a very famous uh, vart that's attributed to the Vilna Gaon about this. In the in the Ten Commandments, Nasser Sadibros, the words are lo tirzach, do not commit murder. But we know there's a difference between reading the Torah in the, what we call the Tama Elyon and reading the Torah in the Tama Tachnon. In one version you say lo tirzach with a kamatz, and one you say with a patach. So the Vilna Gaon said, you see here that a patach means to open. Kamatz means to close. Sometimes you're involved in lo tirzach if you open, and sometimes you're, op- you're over lo tirzach if you close. If you close your mouth when you should open your mouth, or you open your mouth when you should not open your mouth, you're both hinted at in the concept of lo tirzach. The bottom line is that Rav Ehrenberg said, I don't think so. If someone asks you a question, you must answer him. You are not allowed to say that you don't know the answer, but you must tell him the answer, even though your whole parnasa will be, would be at stake. The volume that I said, the first volume, has chuvos that Rav Ehrenberg was asked in a situation where he wasn't totally comfortable. 
he did not have his farm available. He was not, he was pressured by time and place. Some of the conditions, one of the chuvas was actually written on the Kastner train. And questions that involved issues that occurred at the moment. And at that point, Rav Ehrenberg did paskin, but he said this to be included in the volume where he does not paskin for the future until he really would check his sources. Another tshuva in the first volume that also has come up in Jewish history, but perhaps is more poignant at this particular historical time, is whether one is allowed to take a picture of a dead person. Some of the people had left nothing, but the relatives somehow wanted to take pictures. We can also imagine that, God forbid, in the times of some of the great, great tragedies during the Shoah, people wanted to take a picture to remember exactly what happened. The Rav Waldenberg said, it is not Kavra and therefore should not be done. He mentions a famous story of the Mahari Asad. There is a famous story that the picture that we have of the Mahari Asad was taken after his death. But it seems, at least Rav Ehrenberg felt, that the Chachamim opposed this decision and people had complained about it. The entire community was repelled by this action. So therefore he felt that certainly you should not take a picture of any dead person. He also discusses the idea of Kabbalistic idea, that a mystical idea, that a person that looks at a dead person actually loses his capacity or some of his capacity for learning Torah. And he then goes on in a very short discussion how a person could not do anything to impair his learning ability. He said, for tzaddikim, their words, their Torah, is the memory. You should say halacha in their name. And then, he, and therefore he says, it would be obviously better not to take the picture. And of course, according to the Kabbalists, he says it's much more severe than just the halachic issues involved. And therefore he forbids it to take the picture. And at the end, he says, Vashem yitbarach yigdor pirzot amo berachamim b'mher avi amenu amen Kodesh Baruch Hu should fix the troubles, the pains we've had in his great mercy. As I said in this other volumes, some of the questions are more relevant even to today's time. I'd like to mention one or two chuvos in the second volume as well. In Chelek Bey's Simen Chaf, he has a question regarding a, a shul 
in Haifa. This question was obviously already written in later years when he is more uh, at home with his own Svarim, with his own Menuchas uh, HaNefesh. And the question was posed about a building of Haifa that they wanted to build a four-floor building. Chasidish base Madrish. On the first floor, they would have the base Madrish. But above that, they would have three floors of apartments. And the person that asked the question wanted to build, to buy such an apartment. And the question was, could you live in an apartment that's above a shul? Now today, this question is very relevant. I'm really not sure when in Jewish history this question really became relevant. When they had buildings of more than one floor where the people lived on top of the shul, actually lived on top of the shul. But, for example, I, I was told, I, I never seen it myself, but I was told in Hong Kong, they, there's a massive building where they built a shul and the people who built, who owned the property, who really had their shul there, sold the rights to the property to a businessman who built this big complex and the people who had the shul have one floor of the building and actually made a great amount of money on selling the airspace above their shul. And the question was, are you allowed to do this? Now, the reason that this question is particularly interesting when you read uh, the history of Rav Ehrenberg, a Belzer Chassid, he discusses at first the idea of the Sanzer Rav, the Divrei Chaim, who says that a, shti, a shul of the Chassidim, which we call the Shtibol, and I'd like to get back to that in a moment, does not really have the din of the Beis Knesses. Because when they built it, they understood that they're going to use it for other functions as well. For example, he says they make parties. Uh, I don't mean parties of levity, uh, wedding uh, parties. But he says, They have all kinds of what we would call today a fabrengin, hitvadut, a chasidish gathering. And he says, you're not allowed to do that in a regular base medrash. And some of the times people actually sleep there. He says the reason is because the Hasidish Shtibel is not really a shul. What it is, it's a base vada tamnechachamim. The idea is to have an essential hole for tamnechachamim. To get together, to be happy together, for any simchas mitzvah, to use it for guests. They also daven there. But it's not the din of a kedushas he says, there is a Kedusha L'Shem Mitzvah. Now, I'm not going to go into the exact definition of the distinction between Kedusha L'Shem Mitzvah and Kedusha L'Shem Beis But, nevertheless, he says, it's not considered a Bet Knesset, and therefore there's no problem, says the Rabbi Misans in the Divrei Chaim, to build above it. There's no Kedusha, a Kedusha Beis HaKnesses. So, Rav Ehrenberg said, in our generation too, when you build what's called a, bat, a, a batei chasidim, a chasidish houses, he says, that's exactly what it is. And then he adds, that's the reason that in Poland we used to call these houses a shtibel. We didn't call them a klois. In Lita, we have famous the famous expression, the, the, the klois of the Vilna Gaon. The klois was some sort of a 
or perhaps it's related uh, somehow to the word of cloister, but I, I'm not really sure about that. But they was called a kleis. But he, he said uh, the house of the Hasidim was not called a kleis. It was called a shtibel. And a shtibel really means a small house. A shtub, a shtib in Yiddish is a house. And a shtibel is really a home, a home for the Hasidim. And therefore, he felt that certainly it's permitted to live on top of the shul. He then discusses, is it really a good idea to live on type on, on, in a place which is directly above the Aron Kodesh? And at the end, he said a practical solution would be not to be involved in any question at all. The best thing would be to sell. No, he just said it. I'm sorry. He said the bottom line is that it's permitted to build the uh, apartment, to live on top. He did discuss, however, this uh, place, uh, the exact place of the Aron. The last tshuva that we'll have time to discuss today is in the second volume also, Simon Ayin Zion. By the way, you know, every volume, there are over 100, uh, 130, 150 tshuvas in each volume. That means if we have six volumes, we have almost a thousand tshuvas written and printed by Rav Ehrenberg. And we remember that Yachasit, he started this only when he came into Eretz Yisrael. It's quite a, a amount of tshuvas that were written. In Chelek Beis, he asked a question uh, which we'll deal with very briefly, but it's a uh, question that applies today very much. The tshuva was written in 1958, and the question was asked about a teleprinter. A person lives in Eretz Israel, and Shabbos is out, let's say, last night. Today is Yom uh, Rishon of Parshas Bamidbar. And last night, Shabbos... Matzai Shabbos was officially approximately 8.02. So at 8.45, a person came home, made Avdallah, and then wanted to send, in those days, he's referring to a teleprinter, a teleprinter which would print a letter or a telegram to Chutz Laretz. Today we can discuss the internet, telexes, that a person wanted to send it from Chutz Laretz, from Eretz Yisrael to Chutz Laretz. Now, when you do it, when you print it, it's actually going to be printed in Chutzah. So let's say in America at 8.30 last night would be 1.30 in the afternoon. People are just finishing lunch or eating lunch around that time. Are you allowed to send the telegrams because they'll get there on Shabbos? And his answer was, very simply, this is one of the shortest shuvas that's found in the Sefer. He said, Melecha Shabbos can only be done by a person's body. We, you cannot do Melech Shabbos through someone else. And therefore, if you're in a place where there is, where it is not Shabbos, so for sure, you can send such a, a telegraph. The, conversely, if a person would be in a place where it is Shabbos, and he would send a teleprompter to a place where it's not Shabbos, he would also be Chayev. In that case, he would be Chayev. In the first case, it depends upon where you are. So it seems to, from this tshuva that you can send faxes, you can send telegrams to Chutzarts. Of course, the question was not raised as to the recipient of that tshuva or of that uh, tele- of that that message 
will he wait till Motzei Shabbos to use it or not? That issue wasn't raised at all in the question. Perhaps that is something that we should consider. But on the other hand, the issue of Chilul Shabbos per se does not exist. In the same tshuva, he responds to two other questions. One of them also is very relevant, and this is a question that's been discussed by many people of our generation. If a person washes his hands in the bathroom, is that sufficient, or does he have to wash his hands only outside the bathroom? Since today we have modern plumbing, obviously the, the laws that applied in the time of the Gemara might not be relevant today. And many people, including Rav, including Rav Ehrenberg here, have paskined that you certainly are allowed to wash your hands in the washroom, but you should make the bracha outside. Some people have even gone so far as to say you can make the bracha inside because there is actually no reachra. There's the modern plumbing and modern ventilation has created a situation where the room itself might not be considered a room, uh, an actual uh, room of a toilet according to halachic standards. But Rav Ehrenberg does not permit making a bracha in that room, but he does permit washing your hands in that room and making the bracha outside. As I said, the later tshuvos have many more tshuvos that are really relevant halach lamaseh.